We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, continuing our series on Titus, a letter to a church plant. Um, I don't know if you've been to places that uh, just have kind of a reputation about them. Um, There are some places that um, have become synonymous with uh, various phrases or or kind of ideas. Uh, I was just thinking about one that's somewhat, um, you know, somewhat harmless, the idea of when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Uh, Fascinating, as I was thinking about this, that, that phrase came to my mind. It actually came about because of two church fathers, Ambrose and Augustine. Augustine um, uh, was from North Africa, was in Milan, and he asked Ambrose why in Milan they didn't fast on Saturday before the Lord's Day, gathering with God's people. Um, And Ambrose uh, said, well, when I'm in Rome, I fast on Saturday, but when I'm in Milan, I don't. Uh, So when in Rome uh, was the phrase. So that's a church father phrase, of course, now it's kind of used as a uh, helpful dictum whenever you travel, you know, to follow the customs uh, of the day. So, uh, you know, usually that might mean uh, to eat the food or uh, to, to, to go about things in a certain way in light of the place that you are. But, uh, but the, the one maybe that, that is perhaps most synonymous uh, with a place having a reputation in, in our country, in America, is the idea of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? And you've heard that phrase. I'm hopeful uh, that not many of you have participated uh, in uh, such a trip. But uh, when, when we hear that idea, um, that, that notion was, was actually a, an advertising campaign by the city uh, back in, I, did, I thought it was somewhat interesting, this was back in 2003 when that became an idea. Uh, I feel like people had this idea far before the marketing campaign got on track with it. But the idea is uh, you can go to Vegas and indulge not just your gambling desires, but um, <clears throat> indulge all of your desires. The city desired to promote a place of adult freedom and empowerment. You can fulfill your desires and nobody has to know. Uh, but then they created the smartphone and uh, now everybody knows, right? Uh, so what happens in Vegas doesn't truly stay in Vegas, but in many ways that notion of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is somewhat similar to the island of Crete. To, to be like the Cretans uh, had, a, had a certain uh, connotation. We've looked at in Titus 1, Titus, uh, Paul quotes from one of the uh, philosophers or poets uh, from Crete when, when he says that even the Cretans say of themselves that they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, to, be, to act a Cretan was to, was to be a liar or to be self-indulgent. That's what the people in Crete were known for. No doubt a stereotype, but such a a true stereotype, Paul could say that this is true. It marked uh, the people. It was kind of what they were known for. They lived for self, which is really to say they lived with a continual lust for more. More money, uh, more uh, more pleasure, more comfort, more ease, lie still or cheat. It doesn't matter, just give me more, was the philosophy of the island of Crete. And that's where God had Titus establishing these churches for the sake of the gospel. Well, what I want us to see today in Titus 2 is that we're called uh, to be and to make Titus 2 disciples right here in our community, in Ann Arbor and Ipsy. God's called us uh, in our place um, with this mission. Ann Arbor and Ipsy isn't exactly a friendly place to the gospel. It's filled with some incredibly talented, smart, and accomplished people. So much so, I've had a conversation with a former neighbor at a park um, when talking about my faith with them, they say, don't you know that Ann Arbor is too smart for Christianity? <clears throat> it's a community that's filled with both great, both great resources and great needs. And for as enlightened and as progressive as our community imagines itself, and no doubt is, we still haven't quite figured out how to fully address the racial and economic divides that span across uh, our community. <clears throat> It's a place with many churches. I don't know if you've drove, driven around and have noticed the churches, uh, some churches uh, all, all around us. And yet, a church with as many, a city with as many churches as we have, there are some who have sadly forsaken that God's word is true and trustworthy, and even some who have forsaken that the idea that Jesus is the exclusive way to salvation and to eternal life. And with all the churches that we have in our city, Statistics say that 350,000 people in the greater Washtenaw County area that about 7% would identify as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and trusting in Him as their Savior. 
So we may be the most educated city in the United States, according to, to recent reports. I think for the last few years that's been true of us. But in many ways, we're not really all that different than Crete or Las Vegas or any other city for that matter. And God has called us to this place at this time. As we often say, he hasn't gotten our address wrong. He's called us here to be his disciples, Titus 2 disciples in our community. So I want us to unpack what Titus 2 disciples are. Uh, so uh, we've heard uh, God's word from Titus 2, 1 through 10. I, I want us to see uh, three different points from this passage. The first is in verse 1, and it's our call to sound doctrine. As the foundation for making disciples, we have a call to sound doctrine. Just to review for us, to remember that Titus was left in Crete, a difficult place with wayward people, and he was left there <clears throat> with a mission, a mission to establish these churches with faithful leaders and sound doctrine. Paul commanded him uh, to establish pastors in verse 9, if you look there in chapter 1, <clears throat> who were to uh, hold firm to the trustworthy word so that they may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and may be able to rebuke those who contradict it. We, we kind of looked at the, the task of, of a pastor to, uh, to hold fast to sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. And We talked about the need for us to be a discerning church, uh, what it means to commit ourselves to God's word, to watch our doctrine, to watch our life, to help one another in that pursuit. <clears throat> well, in, in, in chapter 2, we're going to begin to see not just the negative aspect of, contra uh, of correcting false teaching, but how sound doctrine produces the foundation for discipleship. And, and so that's what you see there in verse 1. It begins with this contrast. But as for you, the emphasis is on you, Titus. The false teachers may be doing this, but you, Titus, here's what you're to do in leading these churches on the island of Crete. Give yourself to sound doctrine. But it doesn't say teach sound doctrine alone. That would be important. But do you notice what it says? It says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So that, that's to say that sound doctrine produces something. Sound doctrine is leading somewhere. Uh, we're, we're not interested, Paul says, in just creating Christians with big heads, with lots of knowledge about spiritual things, but that the, the gospel, that sound doctrine, would produce something. It would produce godliness. And when we say that sound doctrine produces godliness, it's a reminder to all of us that if sound doctrine is to be the foundation of our discipleship, we have to guard ourselves that something else doesn't replace that. It's tempting to allow other things to, uh, to, to be what shape us and to be what forms us. Romans 12 talks about this in verses 1 through 2, uh, the idea of, uh, of allowing God's word to... Uh, to, to form us and not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's what Paul is saying here, that our life and our th thinking must be submitted to Scripture, otherwise something else will shape it in its place, namely the prevailing culture in which we live. But th there's something else that I want to, to press in here as we think about sound doctrine. When, when we, we think about what sound doctrine is, we can't talk about sound doctrine without talking about the gospel. And to say that sound doctrine produces godliness is really to say that the gospel produces godliness. You see, what we're, we're going to dive into in verses 2 through 10 is we're going to see um, a vision for Christian discipleship. We're going to see what the Christian life looks like in different stages of life and in different stations in life. We're going to look at older men and older women, younger women and younger men, and, and look at uh, from, the, uh, from the highest of society in many ways all the way to the lowest of society as Paul addresses the role of slaves. And we're going to see what the Christian life looks like, but I, but I want us to be clear that what, what we're looking at in Titus 2 isn't merely just saying, okay, here's the Christian life, now do your best. Do your best uh, to figure it out and, and follow all the rules. Make sure you pay attention to everything it says here and do these things and, and don't do these things. That's, that's, not the, that's not the point of what Paul is saying in Titus 2. He's saying built upon the foundation of sound doctrine, which at the heart of that sound doctrine is the gospel, when we grasp the gospel, gospel first 
And then it produces godliness. It produces a life changed by the gospel. So it's really a call first to be a Christian and then to really live as Christians. To know the gospel and the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And then to allow that gospel to transform our lives. Paul in, in 1 Timothy uh, 1.11, he would, he would say it this way. Um, he would say that sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You see, at the end of our passage, which we'll look at next week in verses 11 through 15, uh, is, is a call to, uh, to be grounded in the grace of God, to be grounded in the gospel. And it says, uh, in a summary, in many ways, of the gospel, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. I love that description because it reminds us that the, the grace of God The gospel of the grace of God is about a person. And that grace appeared when Jesus appeared. When Jesus came. And it's grace that's found in Jesus that forgives us of our sins. That removes us from being underneath the judgment of God. That satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. That's able to make us whole. And able to make us new again. That grace is found in Jesus. And this is the foundation of what it means to make disciples, to know the gospel. I quote often from Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers. He summed up sound doctrine in this way. He said, these two points are absolutely needful in every teaching which professes to come from God. Sound doctrine must commend that is, foster holiness of life, and at the same time, beyond all question, he says, be a declaration of the grace and mercy of our mediator, of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine must commend holiness, but above all, must be a declaration of the grace and mercy that's found in Jesus. So before we we look at what it means to make disciples, this call to make disciples... I want, you to, I want you to understand me very clearly that at the outset, before anything else must be done, the first thing that we must be clear on is where we stand in relation to Jesus. Because from that, everything else follows. I, I don't want to declare to you a list of do's and don'ts today. I came to declare to us the grace and the mercy that's found in Jesus. That grace and mercy that that tells us, that reminds us that we were made for God. But things aren't as they should be. We've all gone our own way. We've all gone astray, the scriptures say. And it calls that sin. That we've, we've not only broken God's commands, but we've placed other things and other people even in the place that only He deserves. But rather than leaving us in our sin and leaving us to ourselves, He wasn't content to do that, but He came to us. He didn't say, figure out a way to get to me. But he said, I'll come to you. And he lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve to die as a judgment for our sin. And then he rose from the dead. This is the grace and mercy of God. And and friends, I know I'm, I'm looking at faces of people that I know have put their trust in Christ. Don't get over this. Don't get over the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of everything else of what God has done for us. That reminds us that it's not about us, but it's about Him. That we continually set our eyes and our heart's affection on Him. When we're dry and weary, what we must do is remember who He is and what He has done for us. That He has done all things well, as it says in the Gospels. That He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. But if you don't know Him, Don't delay, because while he holds out his arms, welcoming all to come to him who would run to him and trust in him, he's also a God who will not compromise his justice and his righteousness. And we bow the knee to him in this life, in repentance and salvation, or we'll bow the knee to him 
and the life to come in judgment. Living the Christian life begins with knowing Christ. And knowing Christ begins with understanding that the gospel is the good news of God's grace and mercy for you and I. So first we see our call to sound doctrine, which is a call to the gospel. And from this gospel flows our need for discipleship. The second point that I want us to see. You could say it this way. Titus 2 is the practical outworking of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. It shows how we're to pursue discipleship in everyday life, no matter our age, no matter our position in life. It's the outworking of the Great Commission. In many ways, it shows us how the Great Commission gets worked out between men and women, older men and younger men, older women and younger women. It's very practical. It it, it points us to, uh, to the way in which we're to pursue one another and the responsibility that we have to one another, the responsibility that we have ourselves to grow in Christ. And, and at the core, I, I want to give kind of a, a summary and then press in to the details. At the core of, of our call to discipleship is Jesus' words in Mark 8. He says this in all the Gospels in some form. But in Mark 8, 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow Jesus is to die to self and to live for him. Paul says this in a number of different ways. In Romans 6, 11, he says... Uh, to know Christ is to be dead to sin, that we died in Christ to the guilt and the punishment of our sin and from the power of our sin in our lives, and it's to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite verses in Galatians 2.20, uh, talking about the, the effect of the gospel, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in this, we see that following Christ means turning from self and turning to Christ. Life in Christ. And and if you could sum it up in a word, you might say that the gospel produces, the the work of discipleship produces in us self-control. In fact, this, this is a theme and Titus, it jumps out at us, if you'll see it, particularly in Titus 1 through 8. I, I think I've list, listed these on the screen. But look at how many times Paul points this out. In, in Titus 1, verse 8, elders are to be self-controlled. This is the, the calling and the character and qualification of a pastor. Titus 2, 2 says that older men uh, are to be self-controlled. Titus 2, 5 says older women are to teach younger women to be self-controlled, an implication that older women are to be self-controlled and that younger women are to be self-controlled. And not to leave them out, the young men are given just one job, to be self-controlled. And then in Titus 2, verse 12, it says that that gospel that comes to us in Jesus Christ that brings salvation also trains us in godliness, particularly to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And here it is to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's a lot of self-control. Why is it that Paul made such a point about this? The one thing he says about every group is to be self-controlled. And I think in many ways it sums up the journey of discipleship. To be self-controlled is to die to self and to live in submission to Christ. It's holistic. It encompasses not just our behavior, the external, but also the internal. Internal submission, really, to God and His Word works itself out externally. Look, your external, my external sin, is, is not the, the, it's really the, the result of the internal lack of submission to God. It's, it's the working out of what's going on inside of us. But I, but I have a feeling Paul presses this point home because of the particular context that he's left Titus in. Remember, we've said that Crete was a place of unrestrained indulgences. Lazy gluttons was the word. Pleasure, ease, and indulgence. In Crete, self was supreme. It was so in Crete, and it's so in our day. Self is supreme. Live according to your passions and your appetites is the creed of our culture. You do you. Live your truth. 
Be true to yourself. Embrace who you are. This is the philosophy of our day. College students, this is the, the, the mantra of the university. This is the, the subtle message of the music that we listen to, of the messaging that we hear. But it has a, a glaring blind spot. When we embrace ourselves without being honest about our sin, it puts us in a dangerous place. Self was never meant to be supreme. Self, according to Jesus, was to be submitted to God and His Word. The mark of being born again is that we submit our whole life to God. Our thoughts, our actions, our passions, our desires, our impulses. I love this definition from one pastor who says self-control. He defines it in this way. Self-control is the discipline of governing one's thoughts, words, and actions, as well as one's appetites and impulses, in submission to God and His Word, and in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a mouthful, but I think it's important. Self-control is the discipline of governing one's thoughts, words, and actions, as well as appetites and impulses. It's a holistic submission of governing one's life in submission to God and His Word and independence on the power of the Holy Spirit. This really is the call of discipleship. Not my way, your way, God. Not my will, God, your will. Less of me, more of you. We could say it in, in different ways, but this is the path of Christian discipleship. And it's what permeates what Titus 2 disciples are all about. A submitting of our whole life to God and His Word and dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the, the overarching framework that I want us to see. Now, now let's press in and look at discipleship in every stage of life in verses 2 uh, through, through 8. Paul's going to go through a, really a household code. We saw this in Ephesians in chapter 5 where he goes through uh, the household code in Ephesians, not code, uh, but code, uh, in Ephesians 5 through 6 where he looks at husbands and wives and children and slaves and it's somewhat of a common um, teaching method in, in this time. And Paul uses it to address the church and how it's to function. And he begins with older men. And Paul gives two overarching characteristics of older men that they must pursue in their discipleship. You could sum it up as dignity and maturity. He says in, in verse 2 that they're to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and dignified, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. I think Paul, Paul understood what it meant to be an older man, that some of you have older men in your life that are characteristic of this. Some of you may be older souls that this is true of you, that it's easy to be a little grumpy and a little cynical um, <clears throat> as we get older. Paul challenges uh, these temptations. Uh, he challenges the temptation to ease or coast in your later years. You've achieved a lot. You've lived your life. You've provided for your family. You've done your work. Now coast. Now's the time. You put in your work. Now's the time to be served. That's the mentality that can permeate the older years. And, and, and Paul challenges that and challenges older men to be dignified, to, to be serious about the right things, to control their passions and their appetites even in their later years, to carry themselves free from indulgence and foolish behavior, that their life would be marked by a reasonableness and a, and a dignity uh, that's, that's rooted in the wisdom of God. And the heart of it is found in the spiritual maturity that it talks about in the latter half of the verse, to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. To be sound is to be healthy, to be whole, faithful, if you will. Faithful in relation to God, trusting God. Faithful in relation to serving others, marked by love. Faithful in steadfastness, that, that there's an endurance, that your hope is ahead of you, that you are fixed your hope on Christ and it allows you to be faithful in the present. I believe Paul's instruction assumes that older men live a commendable life worthy of respect and emulation from those who are younger, particularly younger men. He's going to make this explicit as he talks to uh, the relationship between older women and younger women. But I believe that we not only need Titus II women in the church, but we need Titus II men in the church. 
marked by this type of dignity and maturity, grounded, faithful, and faith, love, and steadfastness. I don't know if you've had some older believers in your life, um, but the, the encouragement, just the, the anchor that it can be to see a brother who's lived decades as a faithful follower of Christ, walking in humility, repenting of sin, seeking to obey God, seeking to love and serve others. I don't know how many of you have watched older saints pass from this life to the next, but to watch saints who have loved Christ and lived well, end well, how beautiful it is and a testimony that's so needed for us, how little we think of eternity, how little we so often think about what's, what's ahead of us. We can be myopic and just focused on what's in front of us. The beauty of seeing older men, and as we'll see in a minute, older women who are mature in Christ, faithful in Christ, to live well, to end well, the beautiful thing that that is. Paul commends it. It should be commendable to us. He goes on to address older women in, in Titus uh, 2.3. He gives us two things that we're to see. First is that they're also to be mature in character. It says, verse 3, likewise. It draws out a parallel between older men and older women. He, he presses a similar idea as dignified to say that they are to be reverent, which is a ex, really explicit spiritual emphasis, that they're to, uh, to, to be reverent, which speaks of a holy life that their reverence is to mark itself in the manner in which they live, that they're, they're not given to slander or slaves to too much wine. They're controlled in their, um, in their words as well as in their pleasures. It's said that two things go with age. Uh, natural beauty, it's all going to father time, other time is going to catch up with us. But the other thing that goes with old age, unfortunately, is your filter. And so somebody said that you can't take credit for being pretty when you're young. That, that just kind of comes with the territory. Uh, but if you're ugly when you're old, it's your fault, right? Eventually, uh, what's on the inside is going to come out. Once the filter's off, what's really in there is coming out one way or the other. And Paul says that, uh, that older women are to be mature in character. Of course, this isn't the only thing that Paul could say about about maturity, about godliness. He's pressing uh, these points home as he knows Crete. He was just there sharing the gospel and he knows what he saw and he's making some particular points that are relevant. I think that's why we're going to see here in a minute that he calls the older women to be intentional in training. And, and what we see as the pattern of what took place on the island of Crete is a worthy and commendable pattern that we should practice in the church. But, but I think... Uh, what's, what's important uh, to, to understand here is though he could have said other things, he, he presses home these things. And, and this type of spiritual maturity doesn't just, doesn't just happen in an instant. It doesn't just happen overnight. There's no elevator uh, in, in, in growth and spiritual maturity. You have to take the steps, right? Like that's the way to grow. I don't know if you've, you've been to a building we've been working um, on Wednesdays at a um, at our state convention's office just using some of their space and it's in this really big warehouse building and it's only on the third floor so it's not that high up but nonetheless the elevator's broken um, and you want to push the button and get on the elevator but you can't, you got to go up the steps that's, that's how the Christian life is meant to be spiritual growth requires us to take the steps you don't become godly automatically as you age you become godly in your old age by committing your way to Christ. And that's what we see with these older men and these older women that Paul commends. And he calls older men and older women to this pursuit. But the, the unique thing that we see here is that older women are to teach, at the end of verse 3, teach what is good and so train young women. We'll look at what they're to train them in. But here we see they're to teach what is good, which is to say they're to model in word and deed godly character as well as embracing God's good design in, the life, in life and in the home. <clears throat> the kind of teaching Paul has in mind uh, that he's going to talk about, he's going to flesh out in verse 4 in particular. 
And it's clear from this context that Paul is primarily speaking to, to who he assumes to be young women who are married and most likely with children. However, not everything he says is applicable only to married women. <clears throat> In fact, Paul esteems the calling, the singleness. He sees it as, as good and uh, as, as even advantageous in the kingdom of God. And yet he also upholds the goodness of marriage. Some in the church will indeed be called to singleness, but many desire and will indeed pursue marriage. <clears throat> and what Paul lays out here is both good and honoring to God. Whether single or married, he lays out a, a good design for relationships between men and women and relationships in the home. <clears throat> but notice, notice the point that's, I think, unique here. Paul is telling Titus that he's to train older women, older men, even explicitly younger men, setting an example for them. It doesn't say that Titus or a pastor doesn't have any relationship for younger women, but the pastors share a unique responsibility with the older women in the church to disciple, to train younger women in the faith. It's a particular calling that God gives to the older women. That's a, an intentional uh, calling that's put upon them to train and equip younger women. And, and, and I'll, I'm going to press in here to make a few points on all of this. But in my experience, younger women are eager to pursue this kind of discipleship. And uh, older women are often either overwhelmed or feel inadequate about the idea of doing Titus II discipleship. And sometimes there's a letdown uh, of of desires and expectations. But a point that I want to make here is Titus puts the particular emphasis upon older women intentionally pursuing younger women, training and teaching them. In practice, of course, it's always a two-way street, but, but I want to, uh, in a minute, define what older women are and older men are. But, but here, just to take this moment to say to older women, either in age or in spiritual maturity, that God has gifted you and will give you what you need to invest in the spiritual good of younger women. <clears throat> I think sometimes we get caught up in discipleship thinking that it has to be two hours in a very quiet place, in-depth study of a particular book or Bible study, and that, and that can be very good. And the time sometimes will allow for it. Different seasons and stages of life will allow for it. But I think what Paul envisions here as he talks about what the older women are to train younger women to do, it's a inviting uh, women into the regular rhythm of your life. The same could be applied to men. Welcome people in, into your home, into uh, the, the regular uh, work that's required around the house or in the yard or uh, on your lunch break at work or running errands. You don't have to have this in-depth plan that you can open your life and seek the spiritual good of somebody else. Love God's word and love people towards Jesus. That's the calling of what it means to intentionally train younger women to make disciples. But, but here, here I want us to understand that God's design for the church, and I think for discipleship in the church, is indeed multi-generational. I think that's what we see is, is expected. Additionally, the character of the verses calls for a kind of discipleship that's worked out in everyday life, work and marriages um, and parenting and relationships, personal character. We ought to be a church where we are connected enough where we can, can invite each other into our lives, where we can spend time together, where we have spiritual conversations together, where we care about one another's souls, not just about the weather and our week. That this, this should be normal in the church. Now, most likely, older men and older women... I believe that are referenced here, particularly uh, are, are referencing those who, who are likely beyond their early years of parenting, perhaps empty nesters, if you will, with mature or older adult children. If we were to give an age, it might be the 50s and up would, would be what, what Paul is saying here as he talks to, to older uh, men and women. However, I, I think it's also important to understand, as I've said, age doesn't make one godly. So alongside age, as we understand what it means to be older men or women, we must also understand spiritual maturity. And, and in this sense, in a young church as ourselves, not having a significant number of older men or women, we must commit ourselves to practicing this kind of discipleship just merely based on the reality of spirit, different levels of spiritual maturity and growth in the Christian life among us. Here's the thing. There's always somebody who's a little further along in the faith 
There's always somebody who's a little further behind. Not that there's a race or a direction other than towards Christ that we're headed. There's always somebody that needs help. There's always somebody looking to give help, even if they need to be encouraged and nudged to trust God to do so. This is the calling that we have. Even if our age doesn't match this number that uh, in the body of Christ, no matter how young or old we are, there's different levels of spiritual maturity and the same call to make disciples in every stage of life. But I do want to address something that I think is important for us as a church plant. A church plant with, as I said, not many older uh, men and women according uh, to age. <clears throat> there was recently a story, you guys might have seen this, uh, kind of uh, blew up online. There's a, a Methodist church that uh, was kind of doing a revitalization. And they brought in, it was an older congregation, maybe of 30 people. And they brought in a young pastor. And they sent a letter to the church, which is, again, mostly 60 and up. And they said, hey, we're really grateful for you, uh, but we're doing a new thing. And uh, what we would like you to do for about 12 to 18 months, we want you to go to a different church uh, so we can kind of get our new thing started for the young people. Uh, and then after 12 or 18 months, if you would like, email me, and we can have a conversation about what it would look like to transition you back in to the church. Shame on that pastor. Shame on that church. And yet the reality is there is an ageism that is prevalent in the church at times. There is a tendency amongst those who are younger, and I'll include myself uh, within that, that the tends to believe that maybe the older people, uh, you know, just aren't up with what needs to be done. They're not willing to get on board with the agenda, that we, what we need to do. It takes more time. It takes understanding. It takes patience. And frankly, in our youthful pride, we don't make room for older men and women, older saints and the church. Younger generations need to humble themselves and recognize the need to respect, honor, and listen to older generations. This is how God's designed it in His good wisdom. And yet, at the same time, if I'm going to be consistent here, while there is a humbling that needs to take place amongst the younger generation, there's also, within the older generation at times, within churches that have found themselves like that Methodist church, an unwillingness of the older generation, or, or perhaps a, a discouragement and a disillusion after walking with God with a period of time and not seeing the growth that they would desire, that they begin themselves not to really walk with God not to really be open to the work that the Spirit may want to do. A withholding of themselves from that with skepticism and, uh, and doubt regarding those who are younger believers. And in that process, sometimes the preferences and opinions of the older generation begin to shape them more than faithfulness to God. We have to address these things. As a, as a church, I'm often asked, what's your target audience? of your church. What's the target audience of Treasuring Christ Church? And I get uh, the, the question, but my answer is this. My target audience is my community. My community, which is made up of, uh, of college students, of families, of young professionals, of graduates, of empty nesters, of snowbirds, of older men and women aging in place. It's made up of multi, uh, a multi-generational community. Not only multi-generational, it's multi-ethnic, multicultural, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, first generation, second generation, 1.5 generation. And God's called us to our community, to love our community, to give ourselves to our community. And to be a Titus II disciple church means that we give ourselves to reaching every stage of life, as well as in a moment we'll see every station in life. So... We see he addresses older men and older women. And then he goes on to address younger women. He's going to address three different areas. Family, spiritual maturity, and home. And he starts off in verse 4 with the call to train younger women to love their husbands and children. And then in verse 5, he ends with a call for wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, when I first read that, I have to be honest. I thought, me? Difficult to love? right? Uh, that, that younger women who are married are called to, to be trained in what it means to love their husbands. For those who are married, they uh, readily know that this is uh, wise and good counsel, that it's needed sometimes uh, encouragement to love the sinner that they're married to, as well as the little sinners that they gave birth to that are running around their house. 
There's an encouragement that's needed. Sometimes it can be weary, difficult. I think this year has taught us how much that can be true when you spend all of your time together, all under one roof, how much sin can take place. Submissive to their own husbands. We've talked about this in Ephesians 5, so I won't press into it here, but God has a good design for the home of husbands lovingly and sacrificially leading their wife and wives humbly submitting to their husband's godly leadership. I I love what Matt Chandler, a pastor who's written a book on uh, marriage, he says, a husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world could never truly look at and say, how disgusting and archaic is that? When we really embrace God's good design, and I know we we are flawed by sin, And this good design gets distorted by sinful men and sinful women. But when we embrace God's good design and by His grace seek it, it's beautiful and it puts on display the gospel. And anybody who gets close enough to it, I don't think is going to be revulsed by it, but is actually going to be compelled towards it. And that's the calling that He gives older women to train younger women. And He goes on to talk about spiritual maturity. Younger women either married or unmarried, this is true for all of us, to be self-controlled every area of life, work, marriage, friendships, as parents, as children, in thoughts, in emotions, in words, and in actions, all of it submitted to God. This is why Christian discipleship isn't just like that. Like, this is a journey. This is why you need people in your life. You need people close enough to you with whom you're willing to share these things, as well as who have permission to say, hey, I noticed this. To train them to be self-controlled and then pure, both in behavior and in mind. Sexual immorality isn't just a male problem. It's a struggle for many women in thoughts and emotions and actions. And what I would say in discipleship between women is that this must be a part of the conversation. It must not be left out of the conversation, thinking it's a non-issue. In fact, within relationship of older men and younger men, older women and younger women, it can be, it should be assumed that it's at least a question, a struggle that needs to be asked about, so that the grace of God can be applied to walk in purity. And then he goes on to talk about the home in verse 5. There to be working at home and kind are the two things he says. Working at home. This wasn't controversial to Paul. It doesn't mean that a woman is not to work outside the home or must only be a homemaker or a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't mean that. We see throughout the scriptures other women working outside the home, carrying on different roles and responsibilities. However, what we do see is that God has given a particular calling for women to cultivate life in the home, particularly wives to cultivate life in the home. And that calling calls for intentional time and energy invested into nurturing life in the home. I think what Paul is saying is that the home is to be a place of great care and warmth. It's to be a life-giving place. Not because it's all that a woman would do, but because it's intentional in how they love and care for their families, as well as how they open their lives to others. Single women understand me. When, When we talk about the calling to nurture life, I believe this is a calling that God has entrusted to all women regardless of marital status, that we see in Eve the nurturer of life itself. And this very calling that Paul points out here in Titus 2, I love what Gloria Furman says. She says, Titus 2 isn't about how Christian women need to be domestic goddesses. It's about how Christian women point people to God through their home, through their life. This is what accords with sound doctrine. Faithful and practical matters and loving our husband and children, managing our homes, our relationships, honors the gospel and shows the world the beauty of the gospel. We don't manage our home because it's our hope. We manage our home because Christ is our hope. And then kind. It talks about goodwill to others, compassionate and caring. Really, in in some ways, this is the heart of hospitality. Some of you are reading a book, the discussion coming up on uh, the gospel comes with a house key on hospitality. This is the, the heart of hospitality, of kindness, of welcoming others. Again, uh, just to commend this resource, um, because many women's ministries are built on the idea of Titus 2, 3 through 5. Uh, I love Susan Hunt, and uh, it really brought this idea out, but Gloria Furman in another book called Missional Motherhood, um, which is written for both married women and single women, 
define spiritual mothering in, in a way that, uh, that applies to all women, encompassing discipling, serving, caregiving, mothering, teaching, showing hospitality. She says mothering isn't just a noun, but it's a verb. Mothering is a calling not just for women who have biological or adopted children, but mothering is a call for all women. Every Christian woman is called the spiritual motherhood of making disciples of all nations. Our nurturing is by nature missional, she says. To nurture life in your relationships with others, in your home. And, and, and what, I, what I just want to press home here as Paul emphasizes this is don't think little of the calling that God has entrusted to you as a woman. As a mother, don't think little of the calling that he has given to you alongside your husband to manage your home. Don't think little of the, the unique calling that God has given you as women to nurture life. He's ordered it as a part of his good design for creation. And he upholds it in his word as praiseworthy and as foundational to the home. And frankly, we should do the same. So we, we see his, his directions to younger women and then his directions to younger men. <clears throat> and it seems unfair, really. In verse 6, just one thing he gives the younger men. You got one job, man, to be self-controlled. And I think this is not because uh, Paul has low expectations for men. This isn't a dog the men point. But I actually think he's pressing a point here to say if you get this, you get everything. And I think it's a particular challenge in light of their context. To live a self-controlled life is to truly live a countercultural lifestyle in Crete. For young men to live a self-controlled life in our present-day context is to truly live a counter-cultural lifestyle. To be disciplined in your thoughts, in your words, both online and offline, in your actions, both in private and in public. To allow your appetites and impulses to be submitted to God and His Word. And to live in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Friends, if young men give themselves to this, they'll be the best husbands you could ask for. They'll be the best sons you could ever ask for. They'll be um, <clears throat> the best brothers you could desire. To be self-controlled in time, how you manage your time. Self-controlled in the way you work. Self-controlled in relation to your family and caring for your family. And particularly self-controlled in purity. And, and as Paul presses uh, Titus's own example in verses 6-7, through seven, we can't press into all of it, but he urges Titus to set an example in verse 7, to be a model of good works and show integrity and dignity and sound speech in his teaching that can't be condemned. He says, set this example for young men to be self-controlled. This doesn't sum up everything that should be included in discipleship, but it's the foundation of what Paul is calling uh, the, the churches in Crete to pursue their need for discipleship is their need to grow in godliness and in self-control that permeates this whole section. So we see our need for discipleship in every stage of life and just in verses 9-10 through 10, we see it in every station in life as he begins to address the slaves when he says that the slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. We've already addressed in the past of how slavery in the ancient world is different than what we know as American chattel slavery. It wasn't based on race. It often wasn't for lifetime that people could work themselves out of it. It certainly was by no means a desirable position to be in. And Paul would commend those who were in slavery if they could find their freedom or gain their freedom to do so. But, but notice what he does here and how it should encourage us. Paul calls those who are at the bottom of the social ladder to submit to their role, and to faithfully follow God. No matter where we find ourselves in the stratosphere, uh, the, the social stratus uh, setup, we're called to, to have a work ethic that models what he says in verses 9-10, through 10, to have respect, seeking to please their masters, to have integrity, not pilfering or stealing, to be trustworthy so that they um, may indeed as it says in, in, in verse 9, um, show all good faith. That this is to characterize how we're to work. We, we just see how this not just applies to stage of life, but every position in life that we are given. 
to, to pursue discipleship where our whole life is brought under submission to God and His Word. Titus 2 disciples, Titus 2 men, Titus 2 women, Titus 2 workers. Everything we do, submission to God and His Word and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And all of this comes together uh, as we see woven throughout. I've, I've kind of been leaving this off. You might have think, Michael, why are you not reading all the passage? Verses 5 and 8 and 10 show us our opportunity in all of this to display the gospel. When younger women are trained up by older women, the word of God won't be reviled. In verse 8, uh, as, as Titus is to set an example for the younger men so that the opponent would be put to shame having nothing evil to say. And then in verse 10, as the slaves work out in faithfulness to God and, and respect, integrity, and trustworthiness towards their masters, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All of this puts on display the gospel. I, I was encouraged by this quote from Francis Schaeffer. We'll close with this and the band will come and, and conclude us in worship. <clears throat> As he was reflecting on the call to, um, to discipleship in his book, No Little People, what it means to be devoted to God, he said, we must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight there are no little people. And there are no little places. Only one thing is important. To be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under His Lordship in the whole of life, they may by God's grace change the flow of our generation. And I, I sometimes think as we look at um, what Titus 2 says, maybe you feel like, I don't feel like I can be an older woman, spiritual maturity that, that models discipleship, or I don't feel like I've, I've been a faithful younger man or younger, younger woman in my discipleship. What an encouragement to say that no matter where we've been, we can, be, we can be real with God and honest where we're at, confess where we failed, and ask Him by His grace to empower us to pursue this kind of discipleship. And no matter uh, how weak or inadequate that we feel, like, how could God use me and, and do this work in the life of the church? In God's eyes, there are no little people. In God's eyes, right where he's placed us, there are no little places. One thing matters. I think Schaefer nails it on the head, and it's what Titus 2 talks about, that we would be consecrated persons to God, that we would surrender ourselves to him and say, God, use me for your will. Use me to make disciples. That's what he's calling us to in the church. Every stage of life, every station in life, Make disciples in dependence on the grace of God that comes in the gospel. Let's pray.